We are beginning in the Gospel of Mark, uh, studying in uh, chapter 9 this morning, uh, this first Sunday in November 2023. Hard to believe, only two more months and we will be into 2024. And as I said a couple minutes ago, uh, seven weeks from today is Christmas Eve. But we won't think about that for the next few minutes. Uh, We want to focus on this fascinating passage in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 9. You know, I, I believe that every true and loyal follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the true and living God, every single true and loyal follower of the, of the Lord has a longing to see the glory of God. We want to see the hand of God in action in our lives. We want to see the hand of God in action in the lives of our loved ones. Uh, We want, I certainly want to see the transforming work of God in the hearts of people we know and in our own hearts. We want to know God's presence. We want to see God at work. We want to see the glory of God. And, and, And we can, to a certain extent, see the glory of God through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, I want you to turn as we, but you hold your finger here in Mark 9, but look if you would at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Several passages we're going to take a look at today through the course of our study. But let me just by way of introduction read you this brief passage here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. It's very, very interesting. 2 Corinthians 4, and we are going to begin in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul is saying there is it says that that we are, good morning to you, say we're uh, going to be in Mark chapter 9 if you want to grab a Bible there off that back row. Uh, But this, what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that uh, the, we gain a picture of the glory of God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, God has made the light shine out of our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We gain the knowledge of God, of the glory of God, through our relationship to Jesus Christ. Yet in this, this sin-cursed world, in our sin-cursed physical bodies, we, we do not see the total, complete brightness of the glory of God. If we did, we couldn't stand it. The, 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 the brightness and the awesomeness of the complete glory of God would be so overwhelming to us that we would not be able to live. You say, well, how do you know that, Larry? Because in the book of Exodus in chapter 33, when God was communicating his will to Moses regarding leading the children of Israel, Moses asked God if he would show him the way and make his presence known to him as he led the people. 
God promised Moses that his presence would always be with him. But then Moses asked the Lord, he said, please, Lord, show me your glory. You can read it sometime in Exodus 33. We won't look it up this morning. But it's a fascinating passage, Exodus 33 and 34. Moses says to God, Lord, please show me your glory. And God said to Moses, he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. But he said, my face you cannot see. For no man can see me and live. But then God tells Moses that he will pass by him. He will put his hand over him. And then when he gets past him, he would take his hand away and he would let Moses see his back. That's what God did. And 40 days later, when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, his face was still shining. There was such a glow on the skin of Moses, on his face, that everyone was afraid to get near him. You can read it in Exodus 33. And that is 40 days after God let him see his back. The glow remained. Exodus 33 and 34. God says, you can't totally see my glory or it will kill you. No man can see my face and live. Throughout the Old Testament, any time that God appeared in his glory, it was always in some form of light. We won't take the time to look up all the references, but God appeared in his glory when Moses first led the Israelites out of Egypt. Some of you remember, I'm sure, your childhood lessons from the Old Testament. God led the Israelites with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, both forms of light. The light of God's glory descended on the tabernacle when it was completed. And whenever he spoke with Moses... His, his glory came down to the tabernacle. When the priests were, were, were dedicated to God's service, His glory came to the tabernacle. At various times of judgment, and even hundreds of years later when Solomon built the temple, and other times in the Old Testament era, this, this glory of God, this bright, shining presence of light came down on the tabernacle or on a person. Later on, it's not a word that's in the Old Testament, but later on, rabbis coined the term Shekinah, to, to describe this manifestation of the presence of God. Shekinah means to cause to dwell, and it refers to God causing His presence to dwell with His people. So maybe you've heard that term, the Shekinah glory. It was this appearance of, of a bright light in the presence of God, that's what that actually refers to. So periodically seeing this Shekinah glory was, well, was a great comfort to the Lord's people, reminding them repeatedly of God's presence with them. The New Testament is filled with references to the glory of God. And we get, as we just read, we can get a taste of the glory of God through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in our text this morning in Mark chapter 9, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are allowed by the Lord Jesus to see a small glimpse of His glory and His majesty. This event is called by Bible students the Mount of Transfiguration. And you can follow along as I read this passage, Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We're going to read 13 verses today. We will not get through all of them today. We'll to pick it up on a couple of other issues in this text next week, but we're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, and this is Jesus saying, saying speaking to the disciples, 
He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power or coming with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first, come before the Messiah? There's a prophecy. We'll take a look at this in more detail next week. Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man, how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. I am sure that when Jesus spoke the words recorded in verse 1, that the disciples totally misunderstood. As we've said many times before, they were, they were kingdom-focused. The Messiah was going to be this, this warrior, conqueror, deliverer, miracle worker who was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, to restore the glory of the kingdom to Israel. That's why Peter flipped out, we saw last week, when Jesus started talking about suffering and rejection and death a couple of weeks ago. No, 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 Lord, he says, you, can, you, you can't die. You are the Messiah. So, so now when Jesus says, some of you are not going to die until you see the kingdom coming in power, I'm sure Peter's probably thinking, oh boy, that's, that's, that sounds more like it, Master. Some of us, and I'm sure one of them will be me, will not die until we see the kingdom coming in power. Yeah, man, now, now, now you're talking. But they have no idea what's about to happen. And after six days, Mark records, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he headed for a high mountain. Matthew also says six days, but Luke, when he writes record of this, he says about eight days later. Now, lest some Bible scoffer try to convince you that there are errors in the Gospels, there's a very simple solution. Luke is simply counting the day that Jesus made the promise or prediction, and he's also counting the day of the event, whereas Matthew and Mark count the days in between. Possibly a Jewish versus a Greek thing. Dr. Luke was a Greek. Matthew and Mark were Jews. There's a, but there, there's always a plausible explanation for any supposed contradiction in the Scripture. So, so don't be intimidated by folks who mock the Bible. Just a brief rabbit trail for you today. If you read this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see Matthew and Mark say it's six days after six days. And, and, and Luke says about eight days. So just, uh, I think Luke is probably counting the day he made the promise and the day of the transfiguration. The other guys are just counting the days in between. Uh, the, the mountain is not named. 
But remember, they're in the area of Caesarea Philippi, we saw from chapter 8. And the highest mountain in that region is called Mount Hermon. It's 9,200 feet above sea level. So we can presume that that's probably where they went. Today, Mount Hermon is called by an Arab name. It's on the northern border of Israel, right next to Lebanon and Syria. Mount Hermon means sacred mountain in Hebrew, and it was a secluded, scarcely inhabited area. The peaks are snow-covered all year. Several strong springs partway down the mountain, combined with the snow melt, actually form the headwaters of the Jordan River. Mount Hermon is mentioned several times in the book of Psalms. So being that it's the closest mountain, or the highest mountain, to to where Jesus was at the time, and being a secluded area, we just surmise that that's probably where they were. Quite a a hike, I'm sure. Dr. Luke records that Jesus went up there to pray. And a great place to do that. Quiet, secluded, majestic, and peaceful. I doubt they hiked all the way to the snow level, but when they were partway up the mountain, Jesus stops and he begins to pray. Something very interesting happens to him that we just read about. Our English Bible has used the word transfigured. That means to change form or appearance. Trans means to change. Figured means the appearance or form. And if, uh, if you happen to remember anything from your high school science classes, then you, are, you already, already know the Greek word that's translated here. It's metamorphosis. Uh, meta meaning change and morphe meaning form. Like the butterfly who starts out like a caterpillar, then wraps himself up in a cocoon, and then something amazing happens inside that cocoon, and the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Scientists call it metamorphosis, to change form. And that, that, that is the exact word that's used here. And the, the creator of the universe did some incredible designing when he created the butterfly. That, that tiny little, uh, Those tiny little eggs turn into larvae that turn into caterpillars that wrap themselves in a cocoon and turn into a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. It is a change in form. And the Gospel of Mark says that's what happened to Jesus. Metamorphosis happened to the Lord Jesus Christ right in front of the disciples. Suddenly, his clothing became dazzlingly bright like snow, shining so white, Mark says, that there's there's no bleach on the planet that could even make that happen. One commentator I was reading this week kind of joked about sort of wondering if perhaps Mark had had some bad experiences at the cleaners in Rome. When he says uh, he was so so exceedingly white, such as no launderer on earth can whiten him. Basically, he said what Mark is saying, there is no way that this could be anything other than supernatural. Jesus' clothing was so brilliantly, dazzlingly white that no launderer on earth could have done it. And Peter, James, and John literally were seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in a brief moment of His heavenly majesty. Not His totally brilliant glory, they they couldn't have stood that, but a brief momentary display of the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. James would be martyred in just a few years. But many years later, Peter and John wrote about this experience. And I want to show you those scriptures today. First of all, look at John chapter 1. Only those three disciples saw this, Peter, James, and John. James was martyred for Christ in Acts chapter 12, just a few years after this event. But John and Peter lived much longer, and they recorded this event. Look at John chapter 1. Verse 
Look at verse 14. Very famous verse, we quote it all the time at Christmas time. The Word became flesh. Talking about the Word, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the first 13 verses, you recognize that the Word is Jesus Christ. The Word, he says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then look at that next phrase. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, God the Son became the Son of God. God the Son came to this earth and He took on flesh. And He says, we saw His glory and we knew He was the only begotten of the Father. We knew He was the Son of God. James and my brother James and Peter, we stood on that mountain and we literally beheld the glory of God. Look at Second Peter chapter 1. Way back toward the end of the New Testament, Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writes some very interesting things about this as well. Second Peter in chapter 1. This is such an incredibly powerful saying. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16 is where we'll read. 16, 17, and 18. He said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain." Peter and John both wrote later, we saw His glory, we saw His majesty. The message that we are preaching about the Lord Jesus is not some fluffy little fairy tale that we cooked up. No, he says, we saw His majesty when we were with Him on the holy mountain. We heard the voice from heaven with our own ears. We saw the metamorphosis of the Lord Jesus. We beheld His glory as the very Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. What an incredible, life-changing experience, never to be forgotten. But this amazing event is not over yet. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah standing there with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, it's, it, it's very interesting to me that, that they knew who they were. Moses had been dead for 1,500 years. Elijah's been dead for about 850 years. There are obviously no photographs, no painting, no descriptions of their physical appearance in the Old Testament. So how did they know who they were? Well, the Bible doesn't clearly explain that, but we have two plausible choices. One is that God just revealed it to them. Remember when Peter said to the Lord Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Gospel of Matthew records that Jesus replied, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So perhaps the same thing happened here. Perhaps God just revealed to them that it was Moses and Elijah. But the second option, and I kind of prefer that this one myself, is, is they heard them talking. What do you do when you talk to each other? You, you, you greet people. Maybe Moses and Elijah appears and the Lord Jesus says, Well, good morning, Moses. How are you? Hey, Elijah, yeah. Been a little while since I've seen you. I mean, who knows what they exactly what they were saying. But they, they, they were having a discussion about something. 
And it wasn't that just they, they were there. Uh, Mark records that they, that they were talking with each other. Now, Mark does not record what they were talking about. We, we do know what they were talking about from the Gospel of Luke, but they were having a, a discussion, and maybe the Lord Jesus called them by name as they were having their discussion. But, but regardless of how they knew who they were, they clearly recognized this is Moses and this is Elijah. Now, Dr. Luke says, when you read his, uh, his account of this in Luke chapter 9, you know what he says they're talking about? Jesus' death. Fascinating. There's a lot of prophetic things involved here, and we're gonna, we don't have time to explore today, but we will next week. He said, Mark, or Luke says rather that they were talking about Jesus' death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were discussing the, the cross. They were discussing Jesus' death in a few more months. Wouldn't that have been an interesting conversation to listen in on? Moses, the great lawgiver, the great prophet, the incredible miracle worker by the power of God. Moses, whom God buried and no one could ever find his grave. And, and Elijah, the powerful prophet who lived about 600 years after Moses, who battled idolatry and wickedness in Israel, who stood up against Ahab and Jezebel, who saw the fire of God falling from heaven on Mount Carmel in his big showdown with the prophets of Baal. Elijah, who was raptured, if you want to use that term, caught up in a chariot of fire and taken up in heaven. And here Moses and Elijah appear in glory, Luke says, and they have a discussion with the Lord Jesus Christ about his upcoming death, his sacrifice on the cross for our sin, and we presume the resurrection afterwards. As I say, we'll discuss more next week as to why they might be discussing this with the Lord Jesus. But again, well, what an, what an unbelievable absolutely unbelievable experience for Peter, James, and John to be just sitting there watching. In fact, when you look at the Gospel of Luke and it says Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, I'll let you guess. I'll, I'll give you two guesses. What do you think Peter, James, and John were doing when Jesus was praying? What's that? No. While, while, Peter, while Jesus was praying on the mountain and Peter, James, and John were there, Sleeping, that's what they did. They were sleeping. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Of course, we know the famous story in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were all sleeping while Jesus was praying. Hear the same thing. Suddenly, they, they wake up. And when they wake up, they see Jesus in, this, in his glory, in his majesty, in this metamorphosis. And they see Elijah and Moses there. And they hear them discussing Jesus' death. And you've got to love Peter. I mean, I just, I get tickled with Peter all the time. He just, he just has to say something. Even Mark, Peter's son in the faith, who, who loved Peter and Peter loved him. And he, even Mark records, they were scared to death and they didn't know what to say. So Peter just says something. Let's build three tabernacles, Lord. You know, one, one for each of you. You know, interesting, most Bible, interestingly, most Bible students believe that this event took place in the fall of the year, near to the timing of the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jewish folks built small tent-like places out of branches in which to camp for a week as a reminder of their time in the wilderness when God provided for them supernaturally with manna and other things. Many interesting things happened in Old Testament history around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe that's what's in Peter's mind. You know, there's a prophecy in Malachi about Elijah reappearing prior to the coming of the Messiah. So Peter's obviously still thinking about the kingdom. 
but, but basically they're scared to death. They don't know what to say or how to interpret what, the, what they're seeing here. And so it must have been this overwhelming, awesome experience, and Peter just kind of blurts something out. But then Elijah and Moses disappear. And this voice booms out of heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Then it all goes back to normal. And there's no one there again but, but the four of them. And look at what Jesus says in verse 9 there, chapter 9. As they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I thought, well, that'd be kind of tough, wouldn't it? What's the first thing you'd want to do when you got down that mountain? You will not believe what we saw when we were up there. Too bad you other disciples weren't there. Just me, but just Peter, James, and John. You know, wow, it was so incredible. I just can't believe it. Can, let me tell you about it. That'd be the first thought. As they're coming to the mountain, Jesus says, don't say a word about this to anybody until after I rise from the dead. Be very hard. And yet they're still kind of in the dark. Notice he says in verse 10, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They're still trying to figure out what, what is he talking about, this rising from the dead stuff. Jesus had just told the disciples a week ago that the Messiah had to suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and then rise again. And Peter rebukes him, you remember, for talking about dying. Then they see this brilliant, blazing, dazzling experience of Jesus in his glory. They hear his discussion with Moses and Elijah about his death. And Jesus says again, don't tell anyone about this until I rise from the dead. And they're still clueless. And I thought as I was studying this this week, I thought, you know, they, they are so much like us. How many times does God have to speak to us? How many times does God convict us of sin and we don't respond? How many times does God bring people into our lives to point us in the right direction and we ignore it? God gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and we blow it again and again and again and again and again. And I am so glad that God in this passage and many others let us see that the, that the disciples were in, in many ways spiritual blockheads because we are just like them. We struggle and struggle to get our priorities right. We wrestle with the same issues over and over again. And, and I absolutely love Peter, James, and John because they're just like me. In fact, I'm probably a lot worse. And no offense, so are you probably. God, in His mercy, just keeps teaching, keeps informing, keeps challenging, keeps loving, keeps drawing us in. I love the Apostle Paul's words. Joe read them a moment ago in Philippians 1. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you know Him as your Savior, if you have been forgiven by faith and you are in the family of God, God will never give up on you. 
You are secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus. He will never let you go. He will never give up on you. You will stumble again and again and again. And if you really belong to the Lord Jesus, He will just keep picking you back up out of the dust and telling you, come on, my child, get back on track. Pull yourself together. I'm here. Get back in the race. Because He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me wind up our thoughts this morning by returning to this thought of metamorphosis, a a radical change, a transformation. The word only occurs four times in the New Testament. Matthew and Mark use it when they're describing this event we just read about. The Gospel of Luke uses a different word to describe the change that happened to Jesus. But then the Apostle Paul uses it twice to describe what is supposed to happen to us as we grow in Christ. Let me show you those scriptures briefly. The first one I think you probably are familiar with, Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you're a Bible highlighter marker, if you like to do those sorts of things, and you have never highlighted or marked these verses in Romans chapter 12, I would encourage you to do so. Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There it is, metamorphosis. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Have a spiritual metamorphosis, Paul says. Wrap yourself up in the cocoon of God's grace and God's mercy and God's strength. And when you break out of there, be something different than what the world is. He said, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world uh, form you into what you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world and think like the world and live like the world. You're supposed to be different. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Have a metamorphosis for the sake of, for the sake of God, for the sake of the glory of God. And then he says, be transformed, have that metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. I've said this to you a hundred times. It's been a while, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you again. You've got to change your thinking. You can't change your life until you change your choices, as I've said to you many times. And you won't change your choices until you change your thinking. You can't change your life until you change your choices. And you won't change your choices until you change your thinking. You've got to change what's going on right here before your life can change. And the Apostle Paul says here, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Have a, have a spiritual metamorphosis by changing your thinking. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at chapter 4 just a, a moment ago. The 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is an interesting connection with metamorphosis and the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3. And we're going to begin to read uh, in verse uh, in verse 15. But let me tell you, just before we start, just to get the context there, Paul is discussing the blindness that has happened to Israel in general because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They still have a veil over their eyes, he says. And then I want you to see that this powerful sequence, this this step-by-step process of spiritual growth. Let's read it in verse 15. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. He's talking about the, the, the Israelites. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, meaning there's freedom from that spiritual darkness. But we all, means all of we who know the Lord, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There's our word again, metamorphosis. Being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. A powerful sequence here. Paul says, you, before you knew Christ, you were spiritually blind. The veil was over your eyes. You couldn't see the truth. But then he says, you turn to the Lord. And the blindness is removed. And the veil is gone. And you can see the truth. And the Spirit of the Lord frees you from blindness. Now, he says, as we gaze at the glory of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord helps us to become more like Him. And the more we see the glory of the Lord, the more we live for the glory of the Lord. And the more we understand the glory of the Lord. And the more we become like the Lord Jesus. In this passage, Paul says that metamorphosis, that life change, in this passage, he says, is rooted in our understanding of the glory of God. Jesus Christ on that mountain revealed a new side of himself to Peter, James, and John a side that they had never seen before. He showed them His glory, His majesty, His deity in a way that they never forgot. What are are you doing with the revelation of God's glory in your life? Can you see it? Do you need to turn to the Lord and have the veil lifted? If the veil has been lifted from your eyes, then are you submitting to God's work of change in your life? God wants you to have a spiritual metamorphosis. He wants you to become something different. He wants you to not be like the world. He wants you to see the glory of God and see the plan of God and see the will of God. And He wants that to mold us into someone who is like the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing with the revelation of God's glory in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we... We all need a metamorphosis. We need to be more like Jesus. We need to be less like ourselves. We need to be less like the world. Give us regular glimpses of your glory. And may we be more like our Savior. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.